This morning, uh, it always amazes me how God fits things together, and Michael talked about uh, a commitment to live a new kind of life. Actually, that's much of what I'm going to be talking about this morning is God's grace and uh, how that operates in our lives. Maybe some of you remember uh, 1982. Uh, it was before Google, if that helps. <laughs> 1982, the number one business bestseller of all time was In Search of Excellence. It was written by Tom Peters and Bob Waterman. They were a couple guys who did research on, on the excellent companies, what they called excellent companies in the, in the United States, and what made them so. They defined eight characteristics of excellent companies at the time. And one of the companies that they talked about, and again, this was before Google, they talked about IBM. And uh, at the time, the, uh, the founder of IBM was, was Thomas Watson Sr. And uh, there, there was an occasion in the history of IBM where a young marketing manager in that company made a serious error in judgment and cost the company about $10 million, as I recall. He was summoned into, into Watson Sr.'s office, and of course, uh, the white-haired uh, statesman of the company, the patriarch, the founder, sat behind this huge desk that probably was made out of planks from the Mayflower, you know. It had been around so long. The young man obviously was, was very intimidated and remorseful about what had happened. He was summoned into Watson's office, and he, he walked up to the older man's desk and uh, began to tell him uh, how he regretted what had happened and, and what it cost the company and uh, how sorry he was uh, about his mistake. And at the same time, he, he handed Watson, uh, laid it on his desk, a, a letter of resignation. Uh, the elder man looked down at the letter momentarily, then looked up at the young manager and said, young man, you can't be serious. We've just spent $10 million educating you. <laughs> a lot of people thought that young manager should have been fired, and perhaps he should have been. But Watson saw that as an opportunity for grace and redemption. And that's what we're talking about today as well. In, in England, a number of years ago, uh, Philip Yancey uh, tells the story, Philip Yancey in his book, uh, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? He tells the story about uh, a group of British religious scholars and theologians who were gathered at a conference in England, and they were talking about uh, comparative religions. And the focus of the discussion at the time was uh, what it is that is unique about Christianity. What unique contribution has Christianity made among the world's religions. And uh, they discussed that for some time, but couldn't really arrive at anything that was unique. Uh, after all, many of the world's re uh, religions had a, a story about creation. Many of them had stories about incarnation. Uh, other things that were common to the great world religions. And then uh, C.S. Lewis uh, happened to be there and was a noted author that uh, many of you are familiar with, happened to be uh, there in the building, wandered into the room and asked what the discussion was about. They told him they were trying to identify what was unique about Christianity among the world religions. And he said, well, that's easy. It's grace. You see, all the other world religions have a, a path, don't they, or a, a means for us to earn our way into the favor of a supreme being. The Muslims have their code of law. The Hindus have 
their uh, doctrine of karma. The Jews have the, the covenant. The Buddhists have the eightfold path. But only Christianity has grace. The unconditional, unmerited love of God given freely to us who are undeserving sinners. You know, Jesus told a number of stories about uh, grace, and uh, he called them parables. And, and I have one in particular that I want to focus on with you this morning. It's in Matthew 20. I neglected to uh, see what page number that was in your Bibles in case you want to follow along, but it'll, it'll be on the screen as well. Somebody gets that page number, would they tell me what it is? For those who aren't familiar, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Anybody got it? I'm sorry? 16, page 16, the New, New Testament. And by the way, those Bibles are uh, yours to, to take. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, take one home with you. Uh, you don't need to put it under your coat. No one will stop you on the way out the door. We, we give those away. No one will alert security. We don't have security. Uh, but we want you to have a Bible if you don't have one of your own, so please take that with you if you need to. Uh, starting at verse 1, chapter 20 in Matthew, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and about the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing all, all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't I agree to didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You know, that's a, that's a parable that has puzzled me for years. Uh, and in fact, it, it seemed vaguely un-American because uh, you know we place so much emphasis on merit and performance uh, here in this country and and I thought uh, I thought that you know a, a human resources professional who were would be there at, at the time would say wait a minute mr. landowner uh, don't you realize what a terrible precedent you're setting here paying everybody the same or, or the uh, labor relations person would say don't you realize what a hole I'm going to have to climb out of the next time contract negotiations roll around and, and you've done this? You're really putting us in a bad spot. 
But that misses the point of what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Uh, what, he, what he's saying is that God doesn't deal with us on the basis of merit. He deals with us on the basis of grace. The denarius in this story, the denarius that each worker received represented a day's wage. That was a day's wage for the, the day laborer at the time. And in fact, uh, that's the same wage that a, that a, a Roman soldier would have uh, received for a, a day's work. And interestingly enough, it's also about the same amount of money that would have been needed to feed a family for the day. And that's why the Mosaic Law at the time required that a landowner pay his day laborers at the end of the day so that they could buy food on the way home for their family. It was what they needed to live. The focus of the story here is uh, on those 11th hour workers uh, who were who paid a whole day's wage, of course. The, the, land, the landowner knew that if he paid them for only the hour they worked, they would not have enough to feed their families for that day. Talk about living paycheck to, to paycheck. This was denarius to denarius. They wouldn't have what they needed to live for their families. And, and so the point is that the landowner paid them not on the basis of what they merited, but he, he paid them on the basis of their need. He paid them out of his grace uh, that he exercised. And, and think about it, doesn't God deal with us in the same way? Now, Jesus said that this parable was a picture of the kingdom of heaven. God is the landowner, and, and out of his grace, he disregards what we merit or deserve, and, and he gives us, out of his grace, what he knows we need to live. Well, what is, what is grace? Uh, Jerry Bridges, in the book Transforming Grace, says that grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. Now, now the problem with that in today's world is that uh, most people don't see themselves as guilty sinners, do they? In fact, uh, most people see themselves as, as pretty good. In fact, uh, they say, well, I, you know, I haven't committed any of the really heinous sins and I, I try to live a good life and so, um, you know, if God grades on the curve, I'll be okay. Besides that, just about any day I can look in the newspaper and see somebody somebody who's done something much worse than me. So if uh, God takes all that into account, I should be okay. Uh, you, you and I know that God doesn't grade on the curve, does he? he? He has an absolute standard of perfection. So if a person says, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm better than that person over there because, uh, you know, I haven't done all the things that they've done. Uh, if you compare... For a moment, get this visual. If you compare for a moment the distance between us and God's absolute standard of perfection, if you compare that to the Grand Canyon, and, and you say to me, well, I can jump 30 feet, you can jump only 6 feet, so I'm in a much better position than you are. Uh, it, it's really academic, isn't it? Because uh, both of us will wind up at the bottom of the, the canyon. Because uh, God doesn't grade on the curve. God's standard of perfection is, is absolute. And, and that's where grace comes in. There are two dimensions to grace. The first one is uh, grace that, that saves and, and justifies. And that, that's what Scripture tells us in, in Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So it, it's a bad news, uh, good news proposition, isn't it? That the bad news is, if it's bad, the bad news is that, that we can't earn our way into God's favor. We can't, can't try hard enough or be good enough to meet God's absolute standard of perfection on our own. And, and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 elaborates on that. It says we can't earn it. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul tells us, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The good news is that, that God knew that we couldn't meet his absolute standard of perfection, and he, he arranged a way that we could be justified freely, again, by his grace, because of Jesus' sacrifice and, and death on the cross. Well, what does it mean to be justified? There, there are two pieces to it. Number one, uh, it, it means that we're declared not guilty, just as, as if we'd been found not guilty by a court of law. In this case, it's by God the judge. He declares us not guilty uh, for, for anything that we've done. The second piece is that we're, we're credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, uh, the one person who has lived a perfect life that met God's absolute standard of perfected, uh, perfection were credited with his righteousness. So God sees us not only as not guilty, but as having the righteousness of Christ. And every time he looks at us in his grace, every time he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the position we find ourselves in right now. Once we accept Christ's sacrifice for us by faith, then, then God sees us as, uh, as holy and as righteous. Now we have to experience that first dimension of grace. We have to experience that saving grace and the one that justifies us before we can experience the second dimension of grace. And I think that's the one that's, uh, that's often overlooked. And that's, that's grace that empowers for living. Michael talked about uh, living a different kind of life and making a commitment to, to live life with more passion. What we're talking about there is grace that empowers when we accept God's gift of grace, we become new people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the, the new has come. So, so God not only saves us, but he creates in us a, a new life, Christ's life. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul speaks to his experience uh, of uh, the, the life of uh, Christ in him. He says, that uh, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, and gave himself up for me. So uh, my, my question is, so many of us accept the fact that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to, to uh our salvation. We can't meet God's standard of perfection. We acknowledge that. Um, and, and we accept his free gift of, of grace, Christ's sacrifice that was made for us. But then it seems like sometimes when uh, once we become believers, then we shift back into a, a performance mode, kind of a do-it-yourself uh, approach, uh, approach to trying to please God. 
you know, if we, we can only attend a couple more Bible studies or spend some more time in Scripture or, or do this or, or do that, uh, I'll be acceptable to God. And then we still struggle with the same old sins and we don't see the life change that we think we should see that Scripture speaks about. And we wonder why that happens. R.C. Sproul, a, a, a noted uh, theologian, summed it up. He says, perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we'll go to heaven because we deserve to be there. Once saved, you know, we, we approach God sometimes like we would approach a job interview with our resumes. And, and we say, Lord, you know, I've, I've got all these things I bring to the table. You know, I've got all these skills and experiences that you can use. Almost as, as if he should be relieved that we showed up to help him bring, up, bring in the kingdom. And we fail to recognize that, that apart from Christ, we're, we're spiritually bankrupt. And we don't have anything to bring to the table. You know, I'm told that there are two types of bankruptcy, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, uh, but uh, I understand that, uh, well, there are more than two actually, but the two that we're concerned with this morning are, are chapter 11 bankruptcy, where, where a debtor is given temporary relief from his creditors, and uh, he has an opportunity to uh, regroup and once again become profitable and, and solvent, and uh, he's relieved of the responsibility for some of that debt. Uh, there's another type of bankruptcy. That's chapter 7 bankruptcy. Chapter 7, there's no hope for recovery. Whatever assets are, are left are, are liquidated, distributed to the creditors, and the debtor has nothing left to offer. Friends, some of us think we're just chapter 11 bankrupt. Uh, if just given the chance to reorganize and marshal our resources and, and try harder that we can live lives pleasing to God out of our own resources. And what God says is that, no, you're, you're, chapter, you're chapter 7 bankrupt. And that, that is, there's no hope of living a life pleasing to God uh, apart from the grace available through Jesus Christ. Even our best efforts, Scripture says, are as, as filthy rags. A pastor named Arthur Pink a number of years ago said, the great mistake made by most people, most of the Lord's people, is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul recognized his own chapter 7 bankruptcy. He said, in Romans 7, 18 and 19, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Nothing good. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The reality, friends, is that apart from the grace that is available and the power that is available to us in Jesus Christ, you and I will not bear spiritual fruit, nor will we accomplish anything that will last for eternity. And just trying harder is not the answer. And Jesus told us that clearly, didn't he? In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we can't accomplish anything of eternal worth in our own power, how can we access the grace that is available in Christ Jesus to help us live a life that is pleasing to God and produce spiritual fruit and make a difference for eternity? Well, step one. How do we, how do we appropriate that grace? How do we take possession of it as our own, if you will? Step one, we need to acknowledge that we are chapter seven bankrupt and we have nothing to offer God in ourselves. The, the Apostle Paul reached that point of uh, acknowledging his weakness in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 9. It, you know, you remember reading about the, the thorn in his flesh. He had some kind of a physical affliction that he asked God to take away three different times. God said, no, I, I need to leave you with that because I want to remind you that you're dependent on me. I want to keep you in a state of weakness so that you remember this isn't about you. It, it's about me. He said, uh, but he, that is God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul recognized that his only hope was Christ's power working through him to accomplish God's purposes. Step two, recognize that God's grace is not given to make us happy, uh, but to glorify him. Romans 8, 28 and 29 reminds us of God's good intentions for us. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be, this is, this is key, to be conformed to the image, to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the good that Paul is alluding to here is that the good hap is uh, whatever will shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, not necessarily what will make us happy. Uh, Jerry Bridges in the book uh, Transforming Grace uh, sums it up when he says, it is difficult for us to see God's hand of love in the adversities and heartaches of life because we persist in thinking, as the world does, that happiness is the greatest good. Thus, we tend to evaluate all our circumstances in terms of whether or not they produce happiness. Holiness, however, is a greater good than happiness. So God arranges and orchestrates circumstances to produce holiness before happiness. He's more concerned about our eternal than our temporal welfare and more concerned about our spiritual than our material welfare. So all the trials and difficulties, all the heartaches, disappointments, and humiliations come from his loving hand to make us partakers of his holiness. How do you and I typically respond to hardship and adversity? Do we whine, why me? Or, or do, we, do we ask God, what, what is it, Lord, that you want to teach me? And 1 Peter uh, 5, 6, and 7 says uh, that we need to humble ourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Uh, Jerry Bridges again on God's purpose for pain. He says, God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of his children. He never allows Satan or circumstances or any ill-intending 
person to afflict us unless he uses that affliction for our good. I love this part. He says, God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more to the likeness of his son. Step three, recognize that that everything we need is available to us in Christ. All the holiness, the love, the wisdom, the compassion, the forgiveness, the humility, the special uh, abilities that we may need in in a particular situation, all that is available to us out of the riches of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God wants to provide that. He wants to equip us with that. The ability to have victory over sin in our life is available to us in Christ. And Titus 2.11 speaks to that. Uh, it, it says that uh, it, calls, it calls Jesus Christ the grace of God that brings salvation. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. You see, part of the Holy Spirit's role is to give us access into that grace that is in Jesus Christ so we can live powerful lives for God in this world. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays for the early believers along those lines. He says, I I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You get the transaction that occurs there? He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's God's purpose for you and me. The Holy Spirit's role is to, is to draw from that grace that's in Christ Jesus and, and make it available to us so that we can live out, of the, uh, so that we can live out the life of Christ on a, on a day-to-day basis. And, and Paul encouraged Timothy in that regard too. He said, he said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not just buck up, quit whining, uh, work harder. He didn't say any of that. He said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And, and in the same way, we can ask God to make us strong or loving or wise or compassionate or any of those attributes uh, that we need. Uh, we can ask God for that out of the grace that is in Christ. It's available to us through prayer. Uh, step four, put yourself in the way of the Holy Spirit. John Ortberg, in his book, um, The Life You Always Wanted, uh, says uh, we need to put ourselves in the way of the Holy Spirit like uh, as, as if you were standing on the, on the bank of a stream and you were to step into this rushing stream and the water would overwhelm you and sweep you away. That's, that's the visual. Put yourself in the way of the Holy Spirit. And, and that involves deliberately positioning ourselves through our behaviors and our habits in such a way that the, the Holy, Holy Spirit has the opportunity to exert His influence on our lives. Here's a wake-up call. How much time do you and I spend in the Word of God and in prayer 
versus time in front of the television. Gotcha, huh? Uh, me too. Uh, most of us are, are stepping in. If we're stepping into a stream, it's usually Comcast. It's not the, uh, it's not the, the Holy Spirit and uh, the influence that he wants to have in our lives. But positioning ourselves in that way allows the Holy Spirit to, to turn us into instruments of God's grace. How do we become instruments of God's grace in, in our world? Well, first of all, we have to access the throne of grace. And, and Jesus invited us to do that. James said, uh, you have not, you do not have because you do not ask God in James 4.2. Some, sometimes we don't have access to the power for living that is in Jesus Christ because we have not asked God for it. It's as simple as that. According to the writer of the Hebrews, Jesus invites us to come to him in prayer for what we need. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unavailable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, that is Christ, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach God with confidence that he'll give us what we ask for. We need to be engaging the word of his grace. In, in Acts 20, 32, uh, Paul blessed the early church with these words. Now, he said, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. This is what the word of his grace does in our lives, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. We, we know from Scripture that the word of God is living and powerful. It's not just a book about God. It is a book from God. And, and God intends for it to be a primary means of equipping us to be instruments of grace in, in his world. The, the scripture is, is a, a book that is alive and powerful. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good, word, for every good work. If, if you want to be equipped to be an instrument of grace, then, then we need to get into the word of God. Finally, uh, launching the prayer of grace. Uh, prayer is, is probably the most uh, uh, important and at the same time most overlooked uh, means that we have to become an instrument of, of God's grace to the people around us. You, you know, um, you have to ask yourself, uh, who is not coming to Christ because they have not been prayed for? Uh, what kinds of trials and difficulties and hardships in our lives and the people around us could be prevented if we were people of prayer. God moves in response to the, the prayers of his people. Who has he put on your heart, in, in your family, in your church, in your workplace, uh, that he would have you pray for? And he's waiting to move uh, for, for, you to, for you to lift that person up in prayer. Sometimes it's the only thing that we can do and, and very often it's it's the most important thing that we can do. And then finally, wearing the garments of grace. Um, you know, we've all heard the, uh, the term uh, dress for success. We, we know that it's important to, to dress for the, the role that you're in, and that's no less true when we're becoming instruments of God's grace. In, in fact, the Apostle Paul talks about the dress code for those who would be used by God to be the conduits of his grace to the world. And he speaks of that in, in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, these are the garments, 
compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let me ask you, do, do these attributes describe your wardrobe as an instrument of God's grace? For uh, 26 years, I was a, a state trooper, and most of that time I wore a uniform. Not all the time, but just about all the time. And what I found was that when I arrived at wherever I needed to go, that I didn't have to say a lot about why I was there. People knew because of the way I was dressed. And there wasn't much question uh, about what I was there to do. And sometimes that made them happy, sometimes not so much. What about you? Does what you are wearing, your garments of grace, clearly identify you to those around you? If not, there, there is an extreme fashion makeover available to you. In the, in, the, in the fullness of grace that is in Jesus Christ. He has whatever you need in the way of a new wardrobe. All you have to do is ask in prayer. I'm going to close with a, a story about a man who was used as an instrument of God's grace. His name was Edward Kimball. I'd be surprised if anyone here knew his name. He was a young man from Boston, and I'm reading out of uh, The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns, who's uh, president of World Vision. But Edward Kimball was a young man who taught Sunday school at his church because he felt called to invest himself in the lives of young boys and men. To get to know his students better, he would often visit them during the week where they lived or, or worked. One Sunday, a challenging teenager showed up in his class. The boy was 17, a bit rough-hewn, poorly educated, and prone to outbursts of anger and profanity. Edward thought about how he might reach this boy and one day decided to visit him at the shoe store where he worked for his uncle. Kimball passed by the store once trying to get up the courage to talk to the boy. What would he say, he wondered, and how would he be received? Finally, he entered and found the boy in the back, wrapping shoes and putting them on the shelves. Edward went to him, simply put his hand on the young man's shoulder and mumbled some words about Christ's love for him. Apparently his timing was just right because right there in the shoe store, the boy was moved to commit his life to Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody. And he became the most successful evangelist of the 19th century, preaching to an estimated 100 million people during his lifetime and traveling perhaps a million miles all before the time of radio television, automobiles, and air travel. But the story gets better. Moody himself in 1879 was instrumental in the conversion of a, another young man, F.B. Meyer, who also grew up to become a minister. Meyer subsequently mentored J.W. Chapman and led him to Christ. Chapman also became a pastor and evangelist and started an outreach, outreach minister to, a ministry to professional baseball players. One of the players he met, Billy Sunday, became Chapman's assistant and advanced man for many of his evangelistic meetings. In time, Sunday, having learned the art of preaching from Chapman, started to hold his own evangelistic meetings. He went on to become the greatest evangelist of the first two decades of the 20th century in America. One of his revivals in Charlotte, 
North Carolina in the 1920s was so successful that an associate of his named Mordecai Ham, who years earlier had given his life to Christ at one of his crusades, was asked to come back to Charlotte a few years later to hold a second series of evangelistic meetings. On one of those nights when Ham was preaching, a gangly teenager came forward and responded to his call to give your life to Christ. His name was Billy Graham. Now, do you think that Edward Kimball ever imagined what God intended to do through his simple act of faithfulness? I don't think so. Kimball was unspectacular. He was an ordinary man. He never did anything newsworthy on a human level. But God used his simple act of faithfulness to bring millions into the kingdom of heaven. My, my question to all of us is, what, what about you? What is God waiting to accomplish through your life and, and through mine when we truly yield ourselves to become instruments of his grace? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your life in us. We thank you that uh, we have access to the, the riches of grace that are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the great gift of your Son, for our salvation, first of all, and then for the power to, to live out the life of Christ from day to day. We ask that you make that a reality in our lives and that you use us as instruments of your grace in, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in uh, this church, and, uh, and to those you, you bring across our paths. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.